Welcome to your Marshall Pruitt podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode for the week of Thanksgiving. Apologies for the late posting of the most recent episode, one that went up on Saturday. Here we are back in our normal routine. It is 11, 22, 21, 38 p.m. Monday evening. Back to our residual, sure, regular recording spot. This is my show that I lovingly refer to as my unpolished turd, leaving all the mistakes. And there's usually a few, a couple good ones. Uh, last episode, I tried to say the word points, as in the things that you tabulate to decide who wins the championship, and turned that into points, which is a little bit dirty, I guess. I don't know. Anyways, here we are. Looking forward to diving into your Q&A, all brought to you by Cooper Tires. Those who make the road to Indy possible, the Justice Brothers, been working with them and their products since 1986. Oh my goodness, I feel old. And also, finally, our great pals at torontomotorsports.com. So, why don't we say a quick thank you to one of the fine members of the Prue Day listener group, this crazy band of listeners who've come together under the uh, hashtag Prudate name, gentleman by the name of Matt Philpot and his wife, beautiful, beautiful new addition, baby girl addition to their lives over the weekend to go with their young daughter, Tenley, who uh, had a question for the last guest episode with Pato O'Ward. And so she asked a question to Pato, which Pato lovingly answered. A new addition to their family. Look at this. We have paying... Love, homage, and respect, I guess, to a couple of drivers that mean a lot to the Philpot family. So, beautiful baby girl, Alexandra Kate Philpot, born over the weekend. Alexandra, what, what? Well, that's using Alex Pillow, actual member, your reigning, defending NTT Nicar Series champion. Alex Pillow is indeed a member of our Prude listener group. So, Alexandra, as Matt says... He and his wife came up with uh, using Alex's name uh, to form part of hers. And then her middle name, Kate, that is inspired by the amazingly awesome driver known as Catherine Legg. So let Kat know about that over the weekend. And she was just so excited, or just a couple days ago, I should say. She was so excited to know that, indeed, there's a a baby girl uh, that happens to have her middle name inspired by her. So Huge congratulations to the Philpot family, to the entire Prude family as well for being a, a great group. Want to mention in association to them and what they do, uh, sent a really sweet uh, gift certificate for my wife for her to use uh, some kind of bath, health care, self love type uh, type goods. Sent a really nice gift certificate for her. And so she wanted me to say thank you to you all for uh, thinking of her and sending that along for her. So uh, I think whether it's bath gels or soap or some sort of really nice uh, nice stuff that she'll be able to get with that. Just, uh, again, great appreciation for the Prude Listener Group. And for those who aren't exactly sure what it is, uh, they... Talk about the show, talk about racing, talk about life. Most of them are pretty darn funny. I've never been part of it. I just know a lot of them. 
and uh, they have a bit of a, a private chat group that goes on for them to bench race. So I often forget to mention this at the outset of the show, which I should more often, and that is if you would like to join the Prue Day listener group, bench racing, life, the universe, and everything, a bunch of uh, fun, spirited folks who also do meetups at the various races they get to, you can reach out to a variety of them. If uh, you know some of them, Matt Philpot, as I mentioned, being one of them, uh, Trip Hazard, who else? John Wojnar, uh, boy, there's quite a few uh, for sure who you might reach out to, Ryan Terpster being one of them. Or if you just want to make it easy, reach out to me on Twitter at Marshall Pruitt or on the MarshallPruittPodcast.com site and our contact page. Just send me a note. Folks usually get to me through one of those two avenues or DMs or Instagram or Facebook saying, hey, how do I get connected with them? And I forward those requests on to John or Matt or whomever, and we get rocking and rolling. So really, that's the majority of what I have to share with you. Last little note, I spent today, Monday, on the phone with I don't know how many people. And it's because I am trying to do my best to take most of the week off, have been in a genuine state of exhaustion for months now. And so I think, think, think that by Wednesday, midday, should be able to check out for the rest of the week. We're going to have our pal Alexander Rossi, who we haven't had on the show in a little while. Mr. Rossi is going to join us after winning his class with Honda at the Baja 1000 to talk about that and other things. But I'm looking through my phone and uh, let's see, Will Power, Joseph Newgarden, Scott Dixon, Pato Ward, Mike Shank, Michael Andretti, Brian Herta, uh, Mike Hull, Ed Carpenter. Uh, I won't mention that person's name or that person's name. El Castro Neves um, and a few others. And I'm not saying any of this like whatever. I'm just saying like in terms of trying to create a holy heck, a lot of stories or do a feature story or two with a lot of voices in it. It's been a great day uh, doing that in and about all of our various appointments. Worked in three appointments today, starting from 8 a.m. to getting home at about 5 p.m. So look at that. I was vaguely productive in between all of those things. So (sighs) lots to write, y'all. Uh, and so let's get going with the show. Let's get a little bit of music bed going on here. And where are we going to go first for questions? It's always, always the, the thing that I look forward to when our pal Jim Kaiser, who assembles the questions for us, sends things over. I'm always curious to see what Jim chooses since he selects not only what we use, but the order that we, uh, we run through the questions. I always love seeing what he considers to be the right way to start the show because he is so often correct. We're going to go with the Hoff God leading us off, referring to Karen Horner, that being Red Bull Racing Formula One team principal Christian Horner. Karen Horner got a public slap on the wrist from Formula One for saying stupid things about the volunteer trackside marshals. Got me wondering if anything like that has ever happened in IndyCar. Has anyone ever gotten a public dressing down from USAC, CART, IndyCar, etc. for saying too much stupid stuff? I can't think of any public dressing downs. I can think of 
the obvious stuff that some of you might have coming to mind right now, say a willpower flipping the double birds at Brian Barnhart and race control. Um, and some of those, you know, talking all kinds of craziness, talking out the side of their mouths at race control for an officiating thing. Who could forget Elio uh, going absolute bonkers at Edmonton years ago and having to be restrained by former IndyCar security chief Charles Burns, who's a really great guy. Uh, I think some of those public things we've seen, but it's not specifically as you've mentioned here at the Hoff God, love that, uh, with trackside marshals. Now, not necessarily marshal related, and it's weird to keep saying that word because it's my name, uh, but there are pretty good stories off the record, behind the scenes of team owners absolutely yanking the noose around their driver's necks for things that they have said. Again, could be about whatever topic. could be about another driver, and boy, that person's an idiot, whatever. Um, Pretty interesting to hear about, in particular, in recent years. uh, There's one team owner in general. I'll uh, I'll leave their name out of it for now. Probably figure it. You probably probably already know who it is, but has slash had their drivers walking on pins and needles in fear of saying anything publicly that could be misconstrued as spicy, aggressive, disrespectful, anything like to the point where you go wow when we're talking about pure racing not kind of the fun you know hey we're doing a general interview about whatever and we get to see a little bit of the driver's personalities but actual talking about the racing itself you go wow there's almost nothing that i would consider interesting coming out of their mouths and it is 100 percent by edict of the team uh sad what do we go to our pal, Hrishi Despond? says, the uh, Christian Horner versus Toto Wolf soap opera has me thinking, which two team managers or owners in the current or past Edicar Paddock hated each other to the same degree? I feel like there are some good stories here, given the politics of the cart era. Uh, yeah, there's, um, let me think. There are two team owners right now, Hrishi. And I think it's more one-sided of one truly despising the other. And I'm not going to mention their names because I haven't put it in print, so I'm not going to crack it open here first and cause whatever mayhem. Um, also, it'd probably be not in my career's best interest to close those two doors because they would slam shut. But yeah, there there's a somewhat known, maybe not well-known, but a somewhat known like, oh, yeah. Uh, this isn't good. I think in the last episode I referenced the uh, Showtime show Billions, which my wife and I love. And that was, for many years, my go-to travel show. So I would intentionally not watch new episodes that came out so I could watch them while traveling. My wife was never really interested in watching the show. 
and then uh, somewhat recently that changed and so it was cool because we got to rip through the everything from uh, episode one but in that show for those who aren't familiar it's super wealthy people uh hedge fund managers stock analysts prospectors uh attorney generals whatever wall street new york you name it and it is an entire show built around extremely wealthy or powerful people trying to screw one another trying to ruin one another as much as possible uh put you out of business take everything you have and they do this seemingly back and forth to each other constantly and so that's just the norm of powerful wealthy people who wake up every day trying to not beat the other person but destroy the other person i wouldn't say we have a indycar billions thing here among these two team owners hrishi but i would say that there is an element of if ever i could do something that disadvantaged hurt uh you name it the other one um it will absolutely get done and there is retribution involved there is pettiness involved some of it's fully justified don't get me wrong like fully justified where you go oh you tried to do that oh well like that isn't cool no one would say it was but you did it so yeah i can see why the other side's totally like yeah whatever i can do to get you and mess you up i'm gonna try and do uh so there's that going on at some point in time in the future i hope rishi to be able to flesh that out but i can tell you that knowing about it and being a bit of an observational person trying to people watch and behavior watch and action watch uh these are some pound the 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 chessboard type moves right everything gets slammed and shaken with each move here because we're not just trying to win the game we're trying to truly jack the other one up so um yeah i'm sure there are some other ones that are coming to mind right now from back in the day but yeah we got a good one right now maybe i can tell you about it here at some point in time uh ed walk how you doing ed this is pato ward mentioned adding lightness to the current indy cars to make them more like mika hakkinen's f1 car that he got to drive recently all the safety factors and the upcoming hybrid drivetrain what do you think would be a realistic minimum weight for a modern indy car is there anywhere on the chassis that could be lightened without compromising driver safety also mentions all the best to uh myself my wife and the cats thank you ed uh yes of course just about money if we're talking about everything behind the bulkhead the the rearmost bulkhead the end of the carbon fiber tub the safety cell all the call it metal bits that bolt onto it behind uh there's certainly areas where lightness can be added and that's actually part of the current plan to take some of the heavier metals being used and to turn those into lighter metals so reproducing the same exact thing that we see in use right now but going to lighter metals adding lightness adds cost so when you go from aluminum to something lighter than aluminum oh it's not going to be cheap so that's one thing from the back of the car the 
and I keep making the mistake, and I've been doing it for years, and I wish I would stop. But I keep calling it the hybrid system. There is no hybrid system. Adding a energy recovery system to the internal combustion engine gives us two types of power plant propulsion systems together they form a hybrid it is a hybrid system of two things um i just am saying that to myself so one day it'll stick ed uh the ers system is heavy and the heavy motor generator unit that sits within the bell housing behind the engine in front of the transmission that's just a big old lump of weight Uh, there's no real way around it right now with current technology there have been efforts i'm told successful efforts to remove weight from that system but even so it's still a heavy system not a lot you can do there that i can think of Uh, i would say more the the hope would be the carbon fiber safety cell itself the tub where we have it original design with the xylon anti-intrusion panels the cladding added on and on and on to the side of the cockpits there's been strengthening done to the the ring the basically the the aperture uh, for the cockpit itself that has been strengthened the this has been strengthened and that's been strengthened the tub itself is tank-like and there's nothing wrong with that obviously from a safety standpoint but when you chuck a 60 pound again i think it's 58 but round number 60 pound arrow screen on top of the tub that's a lot of new weight and it's up high and that's not something that any race engineer or driver is happy about from a pure performance standpoint but we know that the driver safety benefit is worth it so we deal with it that's a lot of weight and i don't know how you take that number down knowing that the uh below or but behind i should say the aero screen itself is the titanium wishbone the halo and that's titanium that's already a very light and expensive piece so i think the construction of the tub ed is where there is hope that a significant weight savings can be found by designing a new one with all of the safety enhancements incorporated from day one so here's the question where i don't have an answer and i mean i don't mean like i just don't know and the world doesn't know it's more of a conceptual thing that i'm trying to (laughs) i don't know how we solve this one ed so you talk about driving a race car of any kind you're going to hear a driver or for those of you who happen to drive the term balance is a really critical uh, description of how on its four tires the vehicle behaves is it balanced when i go flying into a corner and turn the steering wheel how does this vehicle react what is the balance like is it somewhat neutral all four tires are uh, possessed of equal weight is there additional weight on the front say a tipping forward of weight on the front of the car the front tires have more weight on them than the back well that's most likely going to give you oversteer Uh, the front 
heavier rear lighter it's not going to stick vice versa if we have rearward weight distribution being the balance characteristic well we're probably going to deal with understeer back of the car is stuck and secure turn the steering wheel and it's happy as can be but the front maybe isn't turning as much as i would hope understeer again for those who know you know for those who don't that's what we are talking about when we hear balance being described well the delara dw12 when it was delivered brand new in late 2011 uh, early 2012 was heavier than it was supposed to be and had a more significant rear weight distribution uh, percentage than is considered super optimal cars too heavy at the back and so understeer is kind of a natural state for the car apply more downforce at front to kind of put more weight on the nose on those tires uh, when the car is at speed but when you're not going super fast if you're in a medium or lower speed corner and the air isn't pressing down on the front wings drastically trying to get as much mechanical grip from the car as you can but again understeer is a characteristic that the car has inherently that you're trying to work around unless you love understeer point being here though is rear weight bias um, more than most teams would say was optimal so there are a couple things done some different suspension solutions long wheelbase short wheelbase move things around a bit so you can move the weight distribution forward and back a couple percent now we're looking at okay cool we've put this arrow screen on and although it's sitting up high and that isn't perfect or great by any means from a performance standpoint it is at the front of the car and it is 60 ish pounds and it adds about one percent of weight bias forward okay that's actually not necessarily something that every driver would complain about hey cool front of the car is you know digging into the ground a little bit more a little more weight on the uh the front tires and okay percentage wise yeah not not the worst thing in the world well then you plug a ers system into the car 120 pounds of rearward weight we're getting back to that suboptimal balance situation, Ed. So when we talk about all this stuff, we go, okay, so if the rear of the car is going to get this ERS weight and the car is just too heavy in general, most would agree, though, that where the weight falls front to rear way too much going to be at the rear with this ers system well if we come up with this beautiful new dw 24 25 or whatever year it is chassis or just do a, a brand new tub it's lighter designed from scratch with all these safety items included aren't we taking weight away from the front of the car and in theory uh exacerbating the problem by tipping the weight distribution farther to the back so what do you do there do you go to a more powerful front wing 
bigger, meaner, nastier front wing so that, again, while the car is in motion and making some decent speed, you can have air pressing down more on the front to kind of create a a better balance. That lever goes from the car kind of sitting down, popping a wheelie, (laughs) to uh, being more balanced on all four tires. Okay, again, it's an option, but that's the, the, the mind trick I'm trying to figure out here, Ed. Everybody tells me, and I know from my own experience, that if we're designing a new car, the tub itself is an area where we should be able to carve a significant number of pounds off. Great. Bringing the overall vehicle weight down, fantastic. Is that, though, going to make this rearward weight bias even worse? And then what happens to balance from there? So... Whew. It's, a, it's a lot of a lot of constraints, Ed, to deal with that I'm glad I'm not the one having to figure it out. Our pal JJ Gertler says, is there any update uh, on the underfunded effort to develop hand controls for Robert Wickens? Uh, says, related, did Romain Groschon's F1 accident have IndyCar people rethinking the issue of drivers with limited mobility? Be ashamed to think um, we've seen the last of Robbie at speed. I spoke with Jay uh, 10 days ago, 12 days ago. And in that interview, I did bring the topic of hand controls. Uh, Robbie is obviously the first name that comes to mind, but a driver with limited mobility, thinking most likely uh, lower leg limitations in terms of mobility, Uh, therefore needing to use hand controls to operate all aspects of the vehicle, is IndyCar open to it? He said yes, and I will put that into a story here shortly, but can't speak to the funding side because I've heard nothing on that side from any sponsor or manufacturer in IndyCar. The general concept of would IndyCar allow such a thing received a... Are we saying no? We're not saying no. Are we open to it? Yes. Is this something we've really spent a lot of time game planning and mapping out what system would be allowed? And, you know, have we worked out much of anything or anything on this? Without saying yes, that's the general feeling that I got. So I'll try and whip that story together here shortly, JJ, just because I do get this somewhat frequently, at least once or twice a month. Folks just want to know, hey, Robbie, when can we get him back in a car? It'll be good to at least have on the record what IndyCar says, despite the fact that it's not fully committal. But uh, I don't know. Maybe someone reading that will go, oh, cool. So the door is open. How do I get involved here to make it happen? Uh, Matt McDonald. Hey, Matt. Uh, Struggling to remember if I have a uh, question for you before. If so, I apologize for forgetting. I think so. But if not, thanks for sending it in. always love when we have folks sending in questions for the first time, even if that's not you. He says, much love to all here. Uh, my wife, Shabrell, and our cats, Rocky and Rosie. Thing I learned today from Pato Award, we have animals named Rocky. His dog, beautiful dog, is named Rocky to go with our cat, Rocky, who's uh, just recently turned 10. Uh, and if you don't like pets, sorry, this is the wrong podcast for you because they get mentioned frequently, if not just jump up and disturb things frequently. 
Uh, so Matt says, after watching this week's Formula One processional become a puncture ganza, <laughs> I was struck by an immense feeling of gratitude for Firestone and Kara Adams. Also, uh, now that Mario Isola for Pirelli from Pirelli is suggesting impact on curbs to be the primary cause of all the tire failures, I can't help but think how smooth the uh, Qatar circuit is, uh, curbs included, compared to most of the road and street courses IndyCar visits. How can those tires be that delicate? Uh, what has Firestone figured out that Pirelli still needs to learn that would allow their tires to be rock solid for a place like, say, Nashville? Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't poke too heavily at Pirelli here. The amount of curbage, the amount of taking of curbs, and some of those curbs being at least looking like they're a little bit sharp to me, uh, there was an excessive allowance um, at the uh, last weekend's race, for sure, Matt, uh, where drivers were, it seemed to me at least, to be allowed to go way the heck out uh, onto the curbs, and curbs that we were seeing sparks, busting front wings, breaking tubs. Uh, six tubs, according to a friend of mine, uh, up and down pit lane were destroyed, leading up to qualifying, right? So, wow. A couple practice sessions, six tubs destroyed over those curbs. So if you can do that to strong, strong carbon fiber tubs, not a surprise. You might be able to do that to as thin and as light uh, tires Pirelli can make as well. Say coming back to the uh, the topic that uh, was raised just a moment ago by Ed Walk, there is a difference here. There, there really is a difference here in terms of application. So we're thinking about a Formula One car that is, by comparison, extremely light. Those tires are built to suit the vehicle that they are uh, connected to. If you think about an Indy car, that is now, even before the ERS system, very heavy. Tires are durable. And I'm not saying Firestone's tires are heavy. I'm just saying that you think about the two very radically different types of open-wheel cars uh, and what their tire vendors make to suit those cars for what we have, as heavy as our cars are, as varied as the tracks are that we visit, as you mentioned, from bounding over the, uh, the, the uh, bridge in Nashville to super smooth here or there to something in between. Like you think about the average Firestone tire for an Indy car, it's being put through hell from a pounding and abuse standpoint to a much greater, greater degree than anything I can really think of in Formula One. So Firestone, Kara, and her team make tires to handle that kind of torture and... We see every now and then with Pirelli, they seem to get caught out when there is a new track that we're going to or some sort of change that is significant that they did not uh, maybe predict would be uh, an issue. So there you go. Gay uh, Gay Jertler, because uh, we already got one from JJ Gertler, so I'm going to go with Gay Gay Jertler, uh, says, Marshall, you've teased us. Now it's time to drop the other shoe. You say you're convinced that Kyle Kirkwood is one year at Foyt and then back to Andretti. Into which seat? Is Rossi leaving? Is Colton leaving? 
Do you think DeFrancesco is one and done? Where are you seeing Kirkwood land at Andretti? I think I might have mentioned this once or twice, JJ, but I'm happy to mention it again. I have full confidence that Kyle Kirkwood would be an Andretti Autosport driver this coming season. Would have never had a reason to sign with Foyt if there were enough Honda engines to go around. Honda has told me we are maxed out for full season leases. If we were to supply a fifth Andretti car, which is what Kyle would have slid into, we would have to make engines, manufacture brand new 2.2 liter twin turbo V6 engines. And that formula comes to an end less than 12 months from now. So it would make no financial sense, even though Kyle Kirkwood is all kinds of awesome for Honda or flip it around. If it was Chevy being maxed out, there would be no good reason for Chevy to waste that money to supply one extra car for a year and then know that those motors are mothballed. So knowing that we have 2023 new engine formula, a pretty solid grasp that Honda will be certainly in high demand. Um, I would just say that a fifth car would certainly seem to be a place for Kyle to land next year. If there were a change of any sort with the existing, within the existing four driver lineup, um, I would say he would be primed to jump into one of those seats as well. But at minimum, if there are no changes, I would still think that Kirkwood will be headed back there because, yeah, that guy has the potential to help lead that team to glory for the next 20 years. If all of the crazy talent we have seen him demonstrate translates to IndyCar as we think that it will. Um, Could be more to that story here uh, in the coming days, weeks, you name it. Um, Mr. Jertler. And so probably the next time you see me getting into that again, probably be in the form of a silly season story. Uh, what do we go to Jeffrey may? How you doing? Jeff recently watched the 1982 Indy 500 and it was wild, but I couldn't get over how different race coverage was back then. Jackie Stewart was in a newsroom, multiple informational videos explaining new refueling procedures and stuff like that. My favorite was the interesting info tidbits about drivers. One was described uh, as the first driver to qualify with a beard in 40 years. Uh, I'm wondering if that was Pat Bedard. Uh, Wondering if you have any weird or goofy ideas to spice up the Indy 500 coverage or something you'd like them to bring back. Also says, give the cat some love for me. I will. Wow. I mean, I got to got to admit the one thing that IndyCar, gosh, let me back up. The one thing that NBC Sports does a, I can't even say terrible job of, a completely absent job of, which I see integrated by other sports, not all, but it, it seems to be happening more frequently. And that is bringing social media into the broadcasts. What people are saying, what people are thinking, Trending hashtags related to the race, the drivers in the race, the teams, the whatever. It's just not even a thing anymore. Or I shouldn't say anymore. It's just not a thing. 
which is weird because what's the one thing that's kind of we all do and connects us divides us whatever but what's the one thing that seemingly everyone is agreed upon we all meet up every day often for hours on end through social media so hey since this whole universe is happening during an indy 500 through social media with great comments from fans hilarious comments harsh comments opinions views on strat hey strategy boy if so-and-so were to stretch their fuel on this coming stint they might be able to do this thing over here i know this isn't an informational tidbit in any specific way but if you think about this whole second event that goes on during every single indycar race we can mention all the other forms of racing the other major sports isn't it bizarre jeff that although we take part in it during the indy 500 or whatever the people presenting the indy 500 act like they're blind act like there isn't a whole sub indy 500 taking place uh through social media so that seems like a no-brainer to me if we're talking weird goofy fun boy i know i've got some terrible takes stupid things that i've said uh brainless comments or observations that i've made like there has to be a gold mine of stupid things that every driver in the indy 500 team owner manager whatever there's got to be some fun hilarious stuff in here to uncork make the race come alive in a connective way to the people who are watching whether it's through a television sitting in the grandstands whatever um i think that'd be hilarious name your favorite driver will power did this crazy thing said this crazy thing whatever pull up that tweet while you're talking about them can you believe it the most embarrassing things they've said or who's the craziest follow of the field of 33 there's gotta be again some sort of like what you follow who that's insane uh it could be you know you might have to censor some of it uh adult film star uh uh you know crazy uh whether it's a political person or faith healer or scam art whatever there could be some stuff in there where you're like now that's actually really good but i don't know if the, the full public needs to see that but look uh your your lamest worst follow um who follows you that you're embarrassed by your worst tweets your worst whatevers um i would think that could be interesting <sighs> I do have a little bit of a not sure which direction to go on the next aspect to this, Jeff, and it's it's been a common thing for decades. And my late colleague and friend Robin Miller was great at doing this, and this was humanizing uh, some of these deities, the, these drivers, team owners who are, you know, Mount Rushmore, we pray to them each morning kind of types. And I think that was great and and i've followed in that tradition whenever possible with 
those that I think need to be humanized or, or have great sides to them that the average person doesn't see. So that part I like. But I do wonder, Jeff, because sometimes you see, or I have seen over the years, the informational videos, the tidbits, whatever, where it's, oh, and here's driver so-and-so out on their ranch with their dog, such and such, and he's just like you, and there she is, and she's doing the thing that she likes, and she's just like you, and uh, trying to, I don't know, create some form of bond. Hey, we're the same people, except I drive in the Indy 500. I don't know if that sensibility is the right one. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm totally wrong. But looking at how Formula One, last weekend's Grand Prix, perfect example. Uh, First, right? The first uh, in Qatar, or Qatar, however it's supposed to be pronounced. Grandstands mostly packed, not completely, but big turnout. And realize that it's a multinational crowd. Got some folks from clearly from the UK and clearly from Holland and wherever, along with um, all the locals. In many cases, hugely passionate folks wearing the team shirt, driver shirt, whatever, of whomever it is that they support. And they are screaming, going mad for Lewis, for Leclerc, for Verstappen, for whomever. But there's clearly a, I love Lando Norris. You will never tell me there is a better driver ever, 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 ever. And fierce loyalty towards that driver or team, Ferrari, whatever. We don't have a lot of that. And I wonder, it's a a question, it's a theory, by no means a fact, but we let people get closer to our drivers and just about any other racing series. Go to an IndyCar race, and if you've been to any others where they keep you behind the, the, the velvet rope, well, we let you in, and you, I mean, we almost let you drive the cars, run the team for the day. Like, we're the most open you could imagine of, of big racing series. I realize the NHRA and IMSA's in that conversation too, but just right. That's how we're different than formula one. I think that part's great, but I think we miss the hero worship part. I think the formula one approach where I got to admit, I don't know a lot about Max Verstappen away from the racetrack. I don't know. Yeah. He's an average Joe and he comes home from the racetrack and he loves nothing more than open up a can of SpaghettiOs and putting on his, his, his little, uh, booties and kicks his feet up and he loves watching friends reruns on Netflix. Like, I don't know these things. I'm sure that information's out there, but run down the list, right? You can, I know we can learn about all the drivers and, and some of who they are and what makes them tick. But I think there's also an intentional effort from the teams and F1 as well to leave a little bit of separation. I don't necessarily want you to know everything. I want there to be a little bit of mystery. I want you to look up to these folks. Always have this driver as an aspirational thing, right? Yeah, okay, I feel like I know you and I cheer for you, but you know, I don't know everything about you and maybe that's good. I do wonder, Jeff, if the, oh my gosh, we're just going to try our best to make every driver seem like they're just you. 
uh, but they drive Indy cars. I think that worked at a time, but I don't know if it works now. I think, if anything, it's maybe backfired a little bit. Do we need to create a little bit more of that separation? Do we need to know everything about everybody? Or do we need to create a little bit of distance, maybe? is Again, I could be totally wrong here, but I just wonder why don't we have people in the grandstands losing their bleep every time Scott Dixon goes by, every time Joseph Newgarden goes by. Joseph Newgarden should be a household name. He's got the talent. He's got the, the success. He's got the looks. He's got the personality. He's got all, the guys like the guy should be one of the biggest things. Not even close. Anonymous as can be. How many Newgarden shirts or flags or whatever do you see in the grandstands at the average race? None. Nashville may be excluded, that being his home race, but it's just not a thing. It's a tragedy. So I just wonder, what do we do? How do we how do we change that? And do we maybe need to stop trying to make everyone so relatable and seem like your next door neighbor and get us back to a healthy place where we'd look would look at a Mario Andretti, AJ Foyt, work down the list and go, This this is our Tom Brady, our LeBron, our, I should say LeBron, he just punched a guy in the face and that wasn't very good, but um, Steph Curry, our Jordan, like, how do we get that back? So, I don't know. Maybe some of the, the wacky, fun social media stuff would be good, but I do wonder uh, how we build our drivers up, maybe through the Indy 500, maybe through the approach of how they're spoken to. Um, maybe we restore a little bit of that hero worship that seems to be lacking. All right, I think that might have been my little mini soapbox moment for the episode. Let's go to James Malloy. You doing, James? Says, what are your thoughts on uh, SMI, Speedway Motorsports Incorporated, or Motors, or whatever, uh, the tr- big track-owning entity? Uh, what do you think about SMI purchasing Dover in the Nashville Oval? Is this further duopolization of racetracks, particularly ovals, cause for concern? Should it be? Uh, would it serve IndyCar good to, quote, buddy up with SMI and preserve future opportunities to add new venues since uh, NASCAR doesn't seem willing to host IndyCar anywhere? Eh. <laughs> I don't know if that's a great answer. Eh. All right, let's move on. As my brain seems to recall, James, it's pretty much been an SMI or... Uh, ISC, the NASCAR International Speedway Corporation track owning thing, it's either been SMI or, or ISC slash NASCAR owning pretty much all the ovals. Obviously not all, but for the most part, just about all of them. I don't know if I see SMI buying one or two or whatever other ovals as being out of the norm or a new action item like, oh, we got to jump in now. Of the many things IndyCar needs to figure out, I would say one is a oval strategy for the future. How important is it to us to expand beyond where we're at right now? I know that we've gone from a worryingly low number of ovals in 2021 to a slight bump for next year, but where does it fit? Because if you are a lover 
of road and street courses, well, IndyCar is your jam because they sure are going to give you a whole bunch. Um, if you're a f- person that loves ovals or likes your IndyCar being closer to a 50-50 split, there's a lot of work to be done. What I don't know, sometimes, if not oftentimes, very hard to get a clear, definitive answer on things like this is what is IndyCar's view? You're going to, of course, have everyone say ovals are our foundation and history and they're who we are and all that stuff, and we love them and we want to have more. Of course, we know that. We expect to hear that. That anyone, you could almost just press the play button. Any and everyone's going to say that. Cool. To what degree? 50-50 split? Uh, 60-40? What is it? But what's the action item here? What's the plan? Do you really want to get closer to 50-50 or 60-40, whatever the number is, more than we have right now? Cool. So what is the plan? How do you plan on doing it? Uh, Is it a one-year, two-year, five-year thing? I don't know, but often hard to get real specifics beyond the rah-rah statements. So I'd say that, James, more than anything, independent of an SMI or whomever, um, got to find out what IndyCar wants and if they have a real plan they're willing to put behind it uh our pal john sable who is smart in the brain says marshall what's your ideal championship point system says i prefer one heavily rewarding wins and only rewarding points for the top 10 i think it incentivizes taking risks indeed said that i think in the last episode as well john so uh totally agree with you there uh let me take that part first top 10 yeah I'd probably go top 12. Uh, that would then lead to a lot of teams crying, saying, no, you need to make it the top 20 or the top all. Um, I wonder if it changes. I wonder if it changes on an annual basis to a split 50% or as close to 50 as you can get based on the annual full season entrant list. So we think we're going to have 27 to 28 full time in 2022. Cool. So again, is that 13? Is it 14? Whatever. But if you can't be in the top half, and I think there also needs to be some sort of modifier to that as well, because if we have a race with a ton of attrition, um, I think, you know, within two laps of the lead or something like that. Not like, hey, yeah, we went out with 20 laps to go, but by good fortune finished 14th. You know, I'm not saying folks who don't finish a race or aren't on the lead lap don't deserve, but to me, I do, I love the idea, and it's a harsh one compared to what we have right now of saying, go earn it. Like, look, we ask you to do this in every capacity during every lap of the race earn your position as a driver, as a engineer, a tire changer, a fueler, a strategist, and like earn it every lap, go get it, do the best, make the best decisions, make the fewest mistakes as a team owner with who you hire. Like just again, on every level, we ask you achieve at the highest possible capability in order to be rewarded. It just seems strange to me to go into a race where all these things culminate and go, hey, you have managed to 
travel one foot beyond the starting line when the green flag waved and then your motor blew up or your wheels fell off. But since you took the start, the easiest thing to do, you get points. And if you keep going, you might get more. Like, come on, man. I remember, which I think I also mentioned recently, I remember Formula One and loving its point system. Top six, period. Brutal. <laughs> like, real brutal. Top six. Who care? You're seventh. Congratulations. You get nothing. If you can't be in the top six, what do you want from us? I think that's, although I loved it, I think that is a little harsh today. Especially since Formula One back then, everyone very different cars than one another. If you had this engine, you knew your year was going to suck. If you were on these tires, if you were just with this team, like you knew it was garbage. Yeah, I loved it, but it was also a bit unfair because you knew that the majority of teams were never going to be in the top six. With spec cars, nearly spec engines, nearly spec everything, I understand that you can't exactly go that harsh. But I do think that, again, maybe the top half is deserving of points. And if the grid shrinks, then it's the top 12 of 24 full-timers or, 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 or whatever it ends up being. I know about top 10. Uh, I can think of a number of teams that really, truly would struggle to make the top 10 since finishing in a decent place is also the thing that activates earning a leader circle contract, which is another issue looming, by the way. Uh, this is one of those things that writing about, I'll try if I have time, but I don't know. Maybe we just talk about it on the podcast. Um, right now, the top 22 are eligible for leader circles. Um, if we're going to have 27, 28 full-time entries next year, we're going to have a fairly unprecedented scenario where whether it's newish teams, newish entries, whatever it might be, there's going to be a decent number of entrants who do not earn a leader circle contract. Having spent similar money to all the other teams, done similar things to all the other teams. This is a bigger topic here, John. Uh, and we won't get into all of its depth right now. But for those who don't know, the leader circle payout system was created whatever it was mid 2000s or so couple reasons one tony george got tired of smaller teams or teams in general coming to him asking for money uh entries might be a little bit low here or there and definitely a, a situation where teams would try and strike and get as much money as they could off of the series owner to uh to help populate the grid also had more or less the same teams finishing up front, like I mentioned about Formula One back in the day. And with the old, call it normal, prize money system, with the majority of it going to those who finished in the top positions, it was a real have and have not scenario. Granted, that's sports, right? Uh, there's a reason in the NFL that the Jets and the Houston Texans and maybe one or two others are at the absolute bottom they're not good. And then there are other teams that are great and the greats tend to get all the stuff and the bad ones don't. So I don't have an issue with the have and have not scenario, 
but there were enough of the have-nots complaining, saying, hey, you have all this prize money available, but we never get it because we're not capable of really doing that. Um, how are we ever going to get better if we can never do that? And so a socialized, socialist, democratized, I don't know what we should call it, but um, a system was struck that said, okay, well, we're going to more or less do away with the traditional prize money system where the victors and the podium finishers get the bulk of it and the rest of you get pennies. So we're going to take what we would have spent for the entire year and divvy it up between 20 plus teams. And it's going to come to you in payouts throughout the year. But this way we've more or less taken the pursuit of prize money away. Uh, so, Hey, little team, that still is going to finish 20th every place we go and will not really vastly improve because they're getting more prize money. Um, nonetheless, we have taken competition out of this and just by committing to turn up at every race, you're going to get an equal slice of prize money just like the biggest teams in the series. So you go, okay, great. So again, kind of socialize prize money. Uh, sign up, commit, buy into this series for the year, and you get just as much small team as the big team gets per entry. Got it. And then we kind of modify that, though, right? Where we go, okay, well, hey, um, we're still going to do the have and have not. So we're going to give, <laughs> we're going to go to this kind of socialized prize money distribution. Um, but we're going to have a limit and we're going to cut it off and we're still going to have the have and have nots, even though this leader circle thing was created essentially to remove the dynamic of have and have nots. So that's a, that's a brain twister of epic proportions, John. Um, I don't fully grasp this idea. Now, look, I realize that IndyCar isn't wanting to just spend millions upon millions every time someone signs up for a full season. I do get that there's a little bit of competition involved, and okay, we're going to have a cutoff, but what do you do when we have 22 leader circles made available, and now we're going to have possibly 28 full-time entries? Is it really? How do you inspire growth? How do you inspire continued growth? How do you hold on to that growth? How do you foster the belief within those team owners, whether they're new or smaller and expanding or even bigger and expanding, that, hey, if you go out and give it your all, you know, there's going to have to be six entries that finish outside the top 22. Like, that's just, it's got to happen because that's life. I don't know how that sits with the average team owner. What I also don't know is if you are considering becoming an entrant and you are aware that this leader circle system exists, how exactly do you feel when you go, oh, well, my money's as green as anyone else's. I'm putting money into this to run my team as best as I can. Maybe we're new. Maybe we're not you know, as good as the others yet, but... Look, I can guarantee you everybody finishing, you know, from 18th to 28th on your average weekend 
probably not great as well, just like us, not as capable, and yet you're deciding to reward some of them with a leader circle, right? The person, the entrant, person who owns the 22nd placed vehicle in the entrance championship, dead last, 22nd overall, like, that's terrible, right? But we deem your 22nd to be worth a million dollars. Come on down. Hey, you and 23rd, you're garbage. You're terrible. You don't deserve a thing. And you go, really? <laughs> I realize there's a cutoff put in place. I get that, blah, blah, blah. But shouldn't the leader circle adapt and evolve with the size of the entry list? If you've got someone who's considering becoming a team owner or has made that investment and all of a sudden, again, we expect their first couple of years to not be brilliant, but is there really a difference between the person finishing 22nd across the entirety of the season to make it in and get that million versus the person that finishes 23rd, 25th, 27th? I, I argue that there is not that much difference but there sure is the ability to create a feeling that, huh, it's a little clubby, isn't it? Like I thought the leader circle thing was supposed to get rid of that so that the haves always have and the have-nots are always out of luck. I thought the system was supposed to circumvent that, but within the system you've created to kill that thing, you're actually still practicing that? If I'm a team owner, a prospective one, trying to put together four, five, six million a year to run a team and know that there's a potential to have a million dollars more to either help improve our team each year or say I only find five million. Well, that six gets me over uh, over the mountain here, and here we are. We can now run the full season. Um, you might struggle at least if you're having to make the argument with me of how a person missing out in 25th is really that much different in 22nd. Um so yeah, uh, that, that's a whole other can. Uh, so we can go a lot deeper into that, but we won't right now. Uh, John closes by saying, I think the current points distribution is too conservative. So I did the math on our points, uh, P1 through P10, uh, 50 points, 25, 20, 10, 8, 6, 4, 3, 2, 1. And with a double points for the Indy 500 and only one bonus point for pole, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he said the standings for 2021 really don't change a whole bunch. Uh, says the winner is still Alex Pillow, Joseph Newgarden second. There is a change uh, with Pato Ward no longer being third. That would be Colton Hurdam moving up to third and Pato falling to fourth. And Dixon, Erickson, Power, Castro Neves, VK, and Ray Hall. So overall not that different, he says. Hurt has slightly helped. Ray Hall hurt by not winning. Yeah. Brother John, I don't think a dang thing's going to change here, but I love the fact that at least you and some others are passionate about this and us on our little podcast, we can talk about things like this and for a moment uh, believe that our way is the right way and others should bend to our will. The thing I'll, I'll tell you just to close is that I am always a big fan of a win is not a second place. And if I look at Formula One's current point system, uh, since that's one of the things we've been talking about a lot. Uh, I think if you win, 
there should be a pretty distinct difference in how many points you get versus second. Not a huge differentiation there right now. So uh, if you're a Lewis Hamilton fan, you're probably saying, yeah, well, Max Verstappen's won a whole bunch of races this year. So in theory, championship might already be over. But I don't, I'm never a fan of, of any series that has a point system where if you have two dominant drivers, which is not uncommon, uh, that they kind of orbit each other the whole time and struggle to really get away from one another because... There's not enough reward for finishing first, and if you finish second, well, you can still stay pretty darn close. Um, it's one thing I think always needs to be uh, to be maximized. Uh, let's go to Kevin Nielsen. It says, with the announcement that the Air Force pulled its sponsorship from Ed Carpenter Racing, where does Connor Daly go and who drives for Ed Carpenter Racing? Well, did speak with Ed this morning. Didn't have anything to offer uh, in terms of who, nor did I expect him to. Um, did say that he would really hope that by the end of the year to have this buttoned up. Uh, and this question answered can only reiterate what Connor said uh, in our article in a little bit more depth in the conversation we held for that interview last week, Kevin. And that was Ed is where he has his sights focused. Staying with ECR, doing the road and street courses, uh, doing the Indy 500. That is really where he's placing his, his full emphasis would say there's also a touch of practicality there. It's not like there are five other extremely open IndyCar seats just waiting for someone to fill, and he's choosing Ed over those other three or four or five opportunities. I'm sure that he has spoken with Ricardo Junkos and Brad Hollinger. Um, I don't know if he's spoken to many other teams about their part-time or full-time vacancies because there really aren't that many left. But it's not like there's a ton of places for him to go. So if it's not with Ed, I would be surprised um, if he landed elsewhere. I mean, I know that he did quite well with Dale Coyne back in the day. Could Coyne run a third part-time car? Again, back to that. A Honda supply thing with coin being a Honda team. I just don't see a lot of other opportunities. Uh, Foyt been there. I don't know if that ended with all the happiness in the world that you would hope, but um, yeah, if it's not it. I'll be really surprised if we're talking regular participation uh, in the series next season, Kev. Indy 500 one-off kind of thing, I think he would actually have uh, a lot more opportunities to uh, to explore there because he's obviously very good on them ovals. Who drives for ECR? My guess is that they're going to need time to get that budget fully satisfied. And so while they learned about the Air Force a couple weeks ago, and their, their plans to not return, finding the money to pay for the majority of that uh, number 20 ECR Chevy entry is definitely going to fall upon, I would say, a driver that can bring that. Uh, I'm unaware of ECR having, again, I could be wrong, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm unaware of ECR having big sponsor A, B, C, and D 
lined up to fill that gap so they can then go hire whomever. I would have to imagine Ed is going to use the remaining weeks of the year to see how much money can be procured by the drivers that they're speaking with. Obviously know that Ryan Hunter tested for them. Know that RHR is certainly trying to find uh, sponsors to come along with him. I am very sure as well that uh, European driver A, B, and C, and D as well are talking to Ed about this opportunity. And if they can bring that money, um, this is one of those deals where that number 20 car, barring Ed's oval exploits, um, the vast majority of the calendar needs to be paid for for that car to be on track. And while you would love for it to be a crazy, wickedly talented driver, there's a business aspect to this that has never changed, and that needs to be satisfied first. If by chance they have an awesome driver like Connor who's able to stay and bring the budget, then great. And if it's someone who doesn't exactly make all of us go, yay, but they are able to pay for it, and that's the best that ECR can uh, can find, that's the direction it'll go. So that's why, again, I'd love to tell you, you know, hey, Antonio Giovinazzi, now free, right, out of F1 at the end of the season. I'd love to see that guy in the car. Does he have millions to bring to drive? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I'd love for that to be the case, but... Who else might be able to fork out that money? That's always the uh, the question with this entry. Uh, let's see. Where do we go next? Uh, Dave Heisen says, okay, MP, let's talk weight jackers. At Indy, we all know they are using the tools, quote, on uh, turn in, turn entry, you say. says, I recall a YouTube interview with Romain Groschon that they used it at Gateway as well. Uh, like dampers, is this a regulated part? Could one team develop a fast dump system or is it unwanted? Expound. It's a great question. Uh, I guess I'd have to look in the rules to see if formally weight jackers are a regulated part. I think they are a commonly understood component uh, that achieves the same result could teams modify one to act faster or slower uh, than another teams that's the part i would have to uh, look into whether that is regulated but i would say to my knowledge i can't think of any team that has like oh the super fast acting system where another one is just struggling and super low, slow and laborious so but yes this is certainly a, a tool used on ovals gateway of course but you know every oval uh that waker weight jacker will be used and that certainly does help to adjust the car's balance uh throughout the course of a run also as we have seen on the longer straights on whatever ovals that happen to have longer straights uh particularly in qualifying but could be done in other sessions as well, maybe even the race. Uh, we have seen teams uh, use pretty smart tactics with their weight jacker to drop the rear ride height, therefore lifting the front to uh, reduce the underbody downforce. Don't need that going in a straight line. And then get that weight jacker back up to where it should be uh, before turning into the corner. 
so that the vehicle platform is stable and making all the downforce that it wants. But yeah, I'm not really aware, Dave, of uh, like, oh, over there, man, they came up with the, the, the magic, absolutely magic weight jacker system, and it acts so much faster and does things so much better. I think it's pretty much a common, everyone's working from something that's pretty darn good and super effective. Uh, let's see, Brian Haywood, as we get down to the last handful of questions here, Brian says, just listen to your podcast with Devin DeFrancesco, and I'm rooting for him. Curious if you can remember any drivers that had good but not standout junior open wheel careers who really shone brightly when they got to IndyCar. Um, also offers kindness, kind mentions for me and Chabrell and the Cats. No, is, is the, the simple answer, Brian. Uh, I can think of some drivers who performed better than I expected coming out of uh, Road to Indy. Uh, Zach Veach. Love me some Zach Veach. And he did have some serious success, podiums and wins and whatnot uh, on the road to Indy. Don't know if I saw him on the road to Indy as someone who is just going to destroy everything in his path if and when he got to IndyCar. Um, if anything, I, I was surprised that he wasn't a stronger performer in IndyCar once he got here. So maybe that's a little bit of the inverse of the question that you're asking. But no, um, not so much. I mean, and, and the ones that you would say maybe fit the bill, more folks where you go, yeah, they really had a highly undistinguished junior open wheel career and were better than expected in IndyCar. But we're talking like, hey, you're 17th in the race. And based on your road to Indy junior open wheel career, I thought you're probably going to be 24th, 25th. Not really, I think, the main thing we're talking about here, which is if you had anyone finish like Devlin, finish 6th or whatever it was in the Indy Lights standings, and go to IndyCar and all of a sudden become a Tiger and is P1 or on the podiums or, or close enough. It's not really something we see a lot of. As I've mentioned about Devlin, and we'll just be honest here, while he has a lot of junior open wheel experience and a lot of racing experience at a young age, uh, he still has some ceiling to go. Top step top tier junior open wheel um it's not like he did a juan piedrahita or uh, or similar where you go like whoa you did a million road to indy races and you're in indy lights forever um there truly there's no percentages left of improvement to be had however you are showing up at the top step you know i'm sorry uh, moving from the top step of the road to indy to indy car like that's you. <laughs> there's you, you. There's a fraction of a percent improvement you might make, but wow, there's nothing left really to develop. It's not the case with Devlin. So I don't expect him to have an amazing rookie season. It's going to be a tough rookie year to begin with between himself, Kirkwood, Callum, and, and whatnot, uh, Lungard. It's going to be stiff opposition to begin with. But where I, I hold out hope is he could use another year, maybe even two in Indy Lights. There's more to develop there within him in this American road street oval discipline. For that, I'm not ready to say, nope, 
uh, that this is never going to work. I have to believe that there's more improvements to be made, more to be learned, and therefore, Brian, uh, we will see more from him in year two, hopefully year three as well. Uh, Cody Oakwood, as we get deeper into the offseason, what does a typical IndyCar race shop look like? To what extent is staff reduced? And how are the cars and engines and chassis and whatnot stored for the next few months? Well, not a lot of staff reduction, my man. Uh, if you happen to catch the IndyCar zip recruiter story that I uh, filed last week, teams are absolutely not trying to shed staff because they probably aren't going to get them back. So for the full-time teams, uh, these are folks with full-time employment. As for what happens in the shop, everything gets refurbished. Everything gets torn down, rebuilt, painted, polished, chromed, whatever it might be. It's a great time for general shop projects. Maybe they have a paint booth. Maybe that booth is old. Maybe they want to replace it with something newer. Pick a variety of things like that. Uh, hey, we have grown and we want to reconfigure our engineering office in our, our quote, engineering transporter. Well, it's remodeling time. Tear everything out, redo things, re, re this, re that. It's a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, things get super clean, not as if they aren't already very clean, but uh, I can tell you the, there are days, there are weeks for sure, where you come into the shop and you go, all right, I don't know if there's a lot left, but hey, the, the lathe, the lathe sure could be serviced or the mill or the kitchen or again, run down the list. Um, the shops tend to stay fairly busy. Um, rarely is it hard to find a thing that you can do better. Hey, your toolbox is grimy. <laughs> Empty everything out, clean it up, maybe throw it away and start. I don't know what, but Hey, we got to do better here. Uh, Hey, we put the car up on high stands, you know, eh, maybe those stands are a little bit old or you've got a better idea on how to do it. That could be whether it's faster, uh, more secure, provide more room, right? Hey, I need to get into this space, but the, the stupid, uh, front stand is, is in the way of this. Well, maybe we will redesign that and, and cut this or weld that or make something brand new. Again, it's a lot of those kinds of things, Cody. So, uh, there's only so much you can do to the cars in terms of tearing them down and, and rebuilding and making everything perfect. Not a lot of on-track activity taking place right now, but or between now and the end of the year. Uh, the engines tend to go back, uh, definitely go back, get rebuilt, get serviced, get developed. Uh, and so those will come back as needed. Um, it's just... It's a lot of the same stuff that goes on week to week during the season, just less vehicle intensive. Got to prep it, rebuild it, do whatever, service it, send it back out the door, off we go. It's more like, okay, now we actually have time. Uh, and so just to close on this, the other thing that happens is crew chiefs, team managers, truck drivers, whomever, they're making notes all year long man when we get a break maybe it's over summer if we have a couple weeks wherever it is uh, these are the things that i want to do given time these are the things that i want to do to improve 
my area that I am in charge of for this team. And yeah, uh, there can come points where you get a little bit bored. You know, race engineers, for example, you can't always be doing R and D projects during the off season with every team. Not every team has a budget to do that. Uh, it's a lot of looking at reports, creating reports, uh, organizing, uh, you, you do run out of stuff after a while. Gotta be honest. But anyways, it's, uh, this is the time where folks game plan. This is where the folks make themselves better, make a, a better overall machine, come up with ideas, look at staff, right? Do we move you around from here to there? Do we need to replace you with someone who's better? Do we need to promote you? What, you know, this is the time where what we see during the season, once it gets started, this is the cool time, Cody, where all the efforts of work to improve every aspect of everything from the cars to presentation, to you name it, to the look, to the personnel and the organization chart, to the engineering information and the R and D and trying to find speed here or there um all this time where all these things happen get played out once the season begins during the season of course there are little steps of progress where hey you know we're always working on improving things not everything happens at the same time you know a couple months into the season there'll be intensive development on this side of things and maybe it'll find some gains and boom this team that was good is now running up front. How did that happen all of a sudden? Well, clearly found something um, setup-wise, R&D-wise, and whatnot. But this is where that whole thing comes together. Uh, it's our pick-your-favorite-sport, our preseason, where all the decisions top to bottom get made that dictate how the season is likely going to play out. Uh, let's see, James Counter. I saw this come through, man, and I I got to think. Said, MP, if we got far enough into the winter to ask about the backstory to the calendar news, you couldn't tell us about when it broke. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I'm sorry, James. Um, send me a note. Send me a something. Uh, jog my memory, maybe. Uh, what did I say back then around it, surrounding it, that maybe will jog my memory the part where I said I am, I've been working from a state of exhaustion for a couple months. It is true. I do my best to hide it, but yeah, I'm sorry that that one, for whatever reason has not stuck in my brain. Uh, we got three to go couple, uh, a couple to go. I don't know how many we'll get to try and keep these to about an hour and a half during the off season. Uh, Jamie Carr Marshall last week, there was a discussion about a wager between teams that compete in more than one series leads me to the question. Is there a history of wagers between teams and drivers? course always and you can share even if uh, names have to be changed to protect the guilty i remember back before danica was an indycar and it was the equivalent of the road to indy after a bet she uh walked tommy kendall around with him on a leash and collar also says happy thanksgiving to you the wife and the cats thank you jamie <sighs> always there's always bets always wagers always something that embarrasses the loser yeah um the one that jumps out here was one of my own, I think it was mid-90s, Indie Lights, uh, driving down from our Bay Area shop. 
with General Racing. I think it was Mark Hotchkiss, Dave De Silva team. And we stopped at the grapevine, the grape, the base of the grapevine. So the grapevine is the, the name for the long hilly section uh, that you traverse coming from Northern California down Highway 5. The grapevine is what takes you over and drops you into Los Angeles. It's about a 40-minute adventure, but yeah. So we stopped at the base of the grapevine to eat. And don't remember how it came up, but there was some form of, all right, Pruitt, uh, we'll give you money if you try and consume this thing. I believe Hotchkiss might have been with us, so there was driver involved, teammates, uh, Cannon, Michael Cannon for sure, John Ennick, uh, and a few others, Ed Nelson. And whatever it was, I think it was just a, a glass of water, one of those tall plastic uh glasses of water and they started they emptied out some water to make space and they started putting in like pats of butter i think some jelly went in there i believe some hot sauce went in there um and they just put in some other things where you're like salt and pepper and you know just stuff that doesn't really uh meant to be put together with all those other items and so yeah i think they got it up to like 40 dollars and so at this time, I would have been like 23 or 24 and 40 extra bucks definitely would have been a big deal to me. Um, being really broke back then, um, it'd be big to me right now. Uh, so anyways, I drank it. And that was the thing. You got to drink it. You can't drink it. Did I say drink? Well, anyways, uh, you got to drink the thing all the way, finish it. And I did. And that was the kind of end of our meal and walked outside. And I can tell you the combination between the jelly the butter the hot sauce the salt the pepper the whatever else they put in there it lasted 30 seconds before i barfed that thing all over all over the parking lot to their great amusement um they ended up giving me the 40 dollars. i think it was out of pity you know again i think that it wasn't just a you got to drink the whole thing but there was an expectation i would hold it down didn't do that unfortunately um, so it, it, a lot of that kind of stuff happens, Jamie, right? It's just teams, you, you're around each other all the time. You get on each other's nerves. You try to find things to amuse yourself. If you can do it where it makes someone else on the team, uh, really uncomfortable or poop or barf or whatever, and you get to laugh at them, even if you got to fork over a couple bucks, it's well worth it. Uh, you step it up to drivers and such, you know, that, that gets, of course there've been many and teams, but rarely do those become public. Um, I do know of one initiative that I'm working on with a friend of mine in the in IndyCar. And I guess it might fall under wager. It's a, a, a word slash phrase bingo. And I do have a note here, so I don't forget it. Uh, and I, I do need to work with my friend and a couple drivers uh, to develop this. As you might understand, Jamie, and as you might already feel, you watch enough interviews, post-race, post-qualifying, whatever. Hey, driver, tell us about your day. Well, the, not, such and such car was good, and i got to thank all the team and all the sponsors. And uh, at the end of the day, it is what it is. And blah, 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 right all kind of sort of the same words from everybody 
And so the, the idea of interview bingo and coming up with, I don't know how many words could be probably needs to be at least 20. Um, but really unique, weird words that don't necessarily fit into the interview. Um, a friend of mine had their driver doing it last season, and that's where the idea came up. And their driver is very good at this and loves doing it. So the idea of coming up with an actual IndyCar driver's interview bingo, where the grid has, again, maybe it's 20 words, and you kind of have to self-report because it's not like we're all going to watch everybody's interviews to do the little blot and say, oh, you cross that one off. But I think there's, I hope, A, we can do that and come up with that, and B, there's some sort of wager. So the first driver to cross out all 20 of those ill-fitting, why did you use that weird word uh, type things in interviews, uh, wins something. And I don't know what it is, but I that's got to happen because it's the kind of fun and mischief where so-and-so holding the mic from NBC or IMS uh, or wherever else We'll be going, huh? But for those of us in the know, like we're going to be giggling our behinds off. And so the race to win that, that wager to win uh, IndyCar interview bingo. Um, yeah. So just got to come up with all the words and or phrases and uh, light that sucker off. Uh, Vincent 1701. I know an IndyCar gets hot, but could you cook a turkey in one? And would it still be juicy by the end of the race? Uh, you can cook it whole or in parts. Your choice. Oh, yes, Vincent. Um, that would not be a problem. Um, if we're talking placing it on or near the radiator, granted, the car thing would overheat unless it was a small turkey, but yeah, you're 200-ish degrees um, constantly. And again, could be a little lower, could be a little higher, but again, just round numbers, 200-ish. But you start moving back, you get near exhaust and turbos, or even the bell housing-ish area. And yeah, I mean, particularly the thing expelling heat from the motor. Oh, yeah, your four-digit heat? Like, you know, you, you could be crazy, crazy heat and have nothing but a dry-to-the-bone, like, boomerang. It would be so overcooked. So not juicy, the exact opposite, killed to death. Uh, so I'd probably go radiator um it's a fun one i love that so thanks for sending that in uh i have a beautiful closer here uh that i'm going to say for just a moment let me see daniel summerskill um no ryan terps you say silly season 2021 isn't over yet let's talk silly season 2022 briefly any big names out of contract into the season yes uh, for sure, Rossi being one of them. Um, more on that to follow, Ryan. Uh, definitely more on that to follow. Uh, Daniel Summersgill, technical question. Just watched the 1995 IndyCar race at Milwaukee, and a lot was made of the new pop-off valves in the broadcast. It's a story of the race. Uh, he says, hashtag coming from a position of zero knowledge, what function did they play in those cars? Do they still have them on today's IndyCars? They do not. They are not on today's IndyCars. Those interesting items that tended to stick out the top of the engine cover not always but um those were meant to limit 
the amount of turbo boost reaching the combustion explosive fun power making areas of the motor so pretty much every instance i can think of not 100 percent because keep in mind turbocharging came in in 1968 not saying pop-off valves did but just as pop-off valves were adopted to try and regulate power a bit um they're pretty much all attached to the plenum the plenum being the item sitting on top of the motor where uh, the intake uh, inlets, the inlet trumpets that feed air to the motor uh, to then combust, the plenum that sits on top is the gathering point where the turbos send all of that boost. So coming in this twin turbo V6 arrangement from both sides of the motor, sending that compressed high-speed air into that gathering point, the plenum, kind of like a pool that sits on top of the motor and then arrives into that plenum and gets stuffed down into the six intake trumpets that then goes down into cylinder bores, gets compressed, gets ignited, gets fuel thrown in there. Boom. Well, the process for regulating boost for decades, cart was really where it took place using a pop-off valve. So that valve, which would bolt onto the top of the plenum, front of the plenum, back of the plenum, wherever it might be over the years, in its original form, would have a spring. And whatever the maximum pressure, boost pressure that was allowed, uh, this would regulate that. So let's say, just making up numbers, 30 PSI, 30 pounds of boost was the maximum allowed by the rules to be fed into the motor well if you were pushing hard revving hard making whatever great power and you could maybe by pushing the motor harder back in the pre-super electronic governance days get it up to 32 psi well in theory that 30 pound spring in the pop-off valve would compress and open. And the plenum, being a sealed thing, uh, would no longer be sealed. Basically like letting the air out of a balloon. So spring-based cap that would plug this hole in the plenum. And if you exceeded the regulations boost maximum, maximum PSI again say it's 30 PSI and you have pushed harder gone harder than you should with the motor which you could back then and maybe get that up to 31 32 well that spring would compress that cap that sealed off the plenum would go up and vent that boost to atmosphere and all of a sudden you have not much power and would get passed by everybody uh, there would be a, for a period, a little tube that would get connected. Uh, plastic or rubber tube going back uh, to the uh, pop-off valve that would connect to the driver's helmet. And this is like way back in the day where drivers would try and listen in. And this would go into one side of the helmet, their ear, and they would listen. And there's basically a tonal change when you would start to just start to crack open the pop-off valve 
And that's when the driver would know, again, pre-electronic management era, to back off the throttle a little bit, to not blow open the pop-off valve, lose all boost, lose all speed, and uh, get overtaken by the field. So I believe what you're talking about here in 95 and what they would have been talking about might be wrong on when the electronic pop-off valves were introduced, but I believe this was uh, the introduction timeline of the electronic pop-off valves. That was truly using data to tell it, hey, this amount of boost has been uh, put through the motor, put into the plenum, that is over, you need to open up. So the difference between using that old, they weren't always the same uh, springs, right? You talk about 20, 30, however many cars, all with the uh, these mechanically actuated pop-off valves, USAC and or CART would do their best to make them all equal, but there was never pure equality. Um, some would uh, were stiffer, for sure, that would allow you to run more boost. And there's always complaints of, oh, I got a bad valve. I got, that was always the thing, Daniel, always running back, bringing back the pop-off valves. Oh, I got a bad valve. This thing opens up at, you know, 28 PSI. I'm getting murdered out here. And they'd bench test it and usually say, no, it opens up at 30. Again, I'm just making up that number. But um, the electronic one, the move to the electronic so that it was an electronic actuated um, opening, um, I think that in theory calmed that down a little bit. The complaints of, of, I got a bad one, I got a bad one, but there's still complaints about I got a bad one. And then there's also the hunting for the best ones, right? Oh yeah. I remember at this race, we got, you know, serial number 14 in that one, boy, that's the one to have. How do I get that? So I think we're talking about the electronic version here. Uh, coming in in 95. But again, I could be wrong and I apologize. A uh, couple other questions that get to the next episode. Raleigh Stricker, I appreciate the one you sent in uh, about chassis stuff. Send that back through. Uh, for sure, we will get to that in the next episode. Uh, I'm writing about that right now. Uh, Ethan Patrick, you're asking about four-cylinder hybrids. Uh, send that back in for sure. Austin Sutton, you're asking about uh, Meyershank Racing's drivers, 2022 chances, Send that back in. Ed Joris, uh, same thing with your uh, data sharing question if you want. I'm going to close the show. Say thank you as always to all of you and all the great questions that you send in, the time that you take. I really do appreciate all of you. Seriously, like I love doing this show because we all connect. And if you have IndyCar friends, if you have folks you're trying to make IndyCar fans, I'm not saying listening to my show is going to improve that. But if you think they might enjoy being part of this community thing that we do each week, invite them to listen. Invite them to send in a question. Invite them to join the Prue Day and uh, jump in with other IndyCar fans and, and do some bench racing and have some fun and make some new friends. Uh, the community side of, of what we all do here really, really, really is what I love the most. So Jordan Darwin, uh, as we say thank you once more to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. Uh, I appreciate Jim Kaiser placing your question or your contribution last, Jordan. He says, MP, no question. Just wanted to wish everyone a happy holiday week. Uh, thankful for you and my fellow listeners as the, uh, the podcast here is a mainstay in my commute. It says, praying for you, 
your bride, her doctors, nurses, physical therapists, and treatment plans. And to you, Brother Jordan, I say amen to the truly fine men and women who participate in this show every week, who listen, who love IndyCar and evangelize and try and make it more and bigger and bigger. Um, I just need to say the same as Jordan. Thank you. Really seriously. IndyCar is growing. It's becoming more. It's becoming better. Long way to go, all those things, but it's becoming more. We're gaining ground, and it's not happening because so-and-so passed such-and-such for 12th place at the ninth race of the year. It's because there's good stuff happening on track, good folks in charge, great teams, great everything, but there has to be an audience that receives it, reflects back to say this is good, brings in more people to help it grow. You all really, truly are the engine making IndyCar improve. This series does not grow and get better just by itself. It is y'all making it better. So I thank you and look forward to speaking to you here soon with Alex Rossi. And I hope you do indeed have wonderful Thanksgivings and catch a bit of a rest because I sure as heck am going to. I'll speak to you here with our man, the 2016 8500 winner, new Rolex 24 Daytona winner in January, and also a first-time Baja 1000 class winner on Wednesday. 